it's springtime, which means in high schools everywhere, there are dilemmas had all the time. It's prom season. And I really, I grew up right at the, right on the cusp of this. Nowadays, in order to ask somebody to prom, it seems like you have to practically propose to them and you have to go through this elaborate thing. Things were a little simpler in my time. When I was a student pastor, I would always laugh at, at some of the ways that people would ask people to prom. One guy hired a mariachi band. One, one guy took his, uh, took his girlfriend cat, uh, fishing for catfish. Um, and so just, just some random things. I remember when I was in high school, we really didn't have to, have to go through all of that. And I remember one night I was at my friend's house with the, the girl I was dating at the time, and some other couples were, were at, the, at a friend's house, and we're watching a movie, and all of a sudden the movie gets paused, and I look over, and our friend, sorry, it still gets to me, he, he comes out with an acoustic guitar, and he, he sings a song that he wrote to his girlfriend at the time, and it was brutal, and uh, I was just sitting there trying not to cry uh, from laughter, now, I've never been really accused of being the most romantic guy, uh, so maybe if, if you're a little more romantic, you're like, oh, this is a nice gesture, even if the words are terrible, and he's off key the whole time. I don't know, but it's just God didn't wire me that way, and I'm squeezing my girlfriend's hand really hard at the time and trying not to just laugh uh, as he's singing this song, and uh it ended with an invitation to prom, and she accepted. And then again, we were in high school, so they started to kiss, and it was disturbing. Uh, as they just sat there and and just started to make out in front of other people. And so we're like, "All right, we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go." And and we got in the car, and my girlfriend's like, "Can you believe that?" And I'm like, absolutely not. That song was horrible. She's like, "That's not what I'm talking about." She's like, "I thought the song was nice." And that's when, like, I really started to question, should I be dating you? Because how can you, how can you think what we just endured was kind of, I was more offended by that than the making out. And she's like, no, I was talking about the making out. I thought the song was really nice. And I was incredulous. I'm like, how was that nice? The words were ridiculous. He was off pitch the whole time. It wasn't a good song at all. And she's like, well, at least he asked his girlfriend to prom. And I'm like, at, that's assumed. Like, why would I, why would I have to ask you to go to, pr we hang out every weekend. We talk every day. Why would I have to send you a separate invitation to a dance when we're already dating? It's assumed that we're going to prom. This morning, <laughs> we're going to look Again, never been, never been accused of being the most romantic person. This morning we're going to look at, a, at an act, at an act of affection. Now, it's not affection in terms of uh, romantic love, but it's an act of affection. And what we saw last week as we started our look at followers is we saw that the plans that God has for each and every one of us is, are as unique as we are. Last week, we saw when Jesus first encountered with James and John and Peter and Andrew, and he called them to follow him. And we saw how their stories would diverge as they followed Jesus and then how their stories would end up and how the plan that God had for each and every one of those four was different. This morning, we're going to see 
a beautiful act, an act of affection, and an act that's reacted to in a number of different ways. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can download in the app store of your choosing. Just type in Bible, and it'll be the first one that pops up generally. And if not, it's called the Bible app. And once you've downloaded that on your device, you can enable the events feature, either by enabling your locations or typing in zip code 54201. If you have a traditional Bible with you here today, we're going to be in the New Testament book of John. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And if you're streaming from home, thanks for joining us. The verses will be available on the stream on the screen below as we continue our look at the people that followed Jesus and the things that we can learn from them. John chapter 12, verse 1, records this for us. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, we're just going to pause right here because we're given a lot of context right here, right off the bat. And I just want to help you understand the scene, understand what's going on. This is six days before the yearly remembrance of the Passover. Now, to, to understand what the Passover is, we would have to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And Exodus records a number of miraculous things that God did through Moses, how he led his people from captivity in Egypt into the, into the land and the whole journey that they went on there. Exodus 12 is where we, where we get the Passover from. And you're probably familiar with the story of Moses, the leader that God has chosen, goes to Pharaoh, who's over Egypt, and he says, let the Israelites go. God has different plans for them, and the plans for God is that they would be the, their own people, that they would have their own land. Let these people leave Egypt. And Pharaoh says no. And so God sends a number of signs in order to get his attention so that he will ultimately do what God, has, what God has called Moses to have him do. And each time, Pharaoh rejects the call of God, each time. And so as the plagues progress, the severity of the plagues progresses. And at any point in time, the plagues could be over if Pharaoh would obey what God has called, but he chooses not to. And so each time, with increasing severity, the plagues happen. The final plague is where all the firstborn in the country are, are killed. They're killed, except for those that would listen to God. And this was available to anybody in Egypt who would listen to God, and it was made known to the people of Egypt. And if they would follow God, if they would obey God, what God would have them do is put a mark on their doorpost that they would sacrifice a lamb and they would put a mark on their doorpost. And at that point in time, then nothing would visit their household. But if the mark was not there, the plague would visit their household. And every year after that is a somber remembrance, is a somber remembrance for the people of Israel to remember what God has called and to remind them to obey what God has told them to do. So it's six days before they celebrate the Passover. Now, Jesus arrives in Bethany, that's a region, and there's Lazarus. And what we learn from, from John 12 is we have to go back to John 11 to really understand the scope of what's going on with Lazarus. Lazarus had been sick. Lazarus had been sick. He had two sisters. 
One is Mary, the other is Martha, and he was friends with Jesus. Lazarus is sick, and he'd been sick for a while. He has two sisters, and he's friends with Jesus. I'm fascinated by this, because we read throughout, throughout the accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read, we read all kinds of accounts of Jesus healing people, and he does. But here's his friend. I mean, if you're sick and you have a friend, you want your friend to be Jesus. That's, that's who you want to choose. But Jesus doesn't heal Lazarus. In fact, John 11 tells us that Lazarus dies. And not only does Lazarus die, and he's friends with Jesus, but when Jesus receives word that Lazarus is dead, he takes his time to come back. He doesn't show up for a couple days after Lazarus has died. And then, Jesus performs an incredible miracle. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, you would think out of all of the things that Jesus has done, out of all of the miracles that Jesus has performed, the blind receiving sight, those unable to walk now being mobile, the deaf being able to hear, turning water into wine, walking on water. You would think out of all of the miracles that Jesus has performed, this is the one that, that people are just going to lose their minds over and celebrate, and it's going to be a party like you have never seen before. And John 11 tells us that after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, oh, the people lose their minds all right. But it's not in celebration. They plot to kill Jesus. Which fascinates me because Jesus just raised someone from the dead. What do we do with somebody who just raised somebody from the dead? I know. Let's kill him. That's brilliant. Let's kill him. But that's exactly their plan. Because really, when you think about it, what else are we going to do? Death's kind of the end when we get to punishments. And so Jesus leaves the region. He arrives in Bethany. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So while the crowds come up with the plan, let's kill him, Jesus retreats, goes to a different region, and now we see that they're going to throw him a party. They're going to throw him a party. So Jesus is the guest of honor, and one of the guests at the party gets to be the person that died. It's one of the perks of having to die, is when Jesus raised you back to life, you get to go to the dinner that's thrown in Jesus' honor. So Lazarus is there, and we're told right off the bat that Martha was serving, Lazarus was relaxing. After you die, you get a week or so where you get to chill out a little bit and let everybody else take care of the things. One of the, it's just one of the perks of having died. And what we see right, right off this bat is Martha's very task-oriented. She's very task-oriented. She's the one that's serving dinner. She, she's the one that's, that's working. She's, she's task-oriented. We know this not just from this account, but in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, she has Jesus over for dinner another time. And she's upset in Luke chapter 10 with her sister Mary 
And if there is any drama in the world that's fun to watch, it's sister drama. I mean, this is just, it's, it's fun. Uh, unless you're one of the sisters and then you're in it, then it's not as much fun. But if you're not in the drama and you just get to watch it like a reality show, sister drama is fun to watch. And, and what we see from Luke chapter 10 is that Martha is throwing the, the dinner and she's upset at Mary because Mary isn't in helping cook. Mary isn't in setting the table. Mary isn't taking everybody's drink order. Mary's listening to Jesus as he talks. And Martha's incredulous that Mary isn't helping get dinner ready. And I'm fascinated by this because a lot of times people that are more task-oriented, they, they, go, they go back to, they, they work. They work. And when you're task-oriented, that's, that's what you do. You're, you're working. But you look at people who maybe have more of a relational value than you do, if you're, if you're very task-oriented, and you don't understand what they're doing. And sometimes you think, well, they're being lazy. Sometimes you think, oh, I don't matter to them because I'm in here working my butt off, and they're over there sitting down, and I'm like, I, this is the list. This is what we have to accomplish. Dinner isn't going to cook itself. The, tab the table isn't going to be set by itself. Drinks aren't going to magically be poured. All these things need to happen. And if you're task-oriented, you've got the list, and you're working on the list. And when you look around and see people that aren't working on the list, you're thinking, what's wrong with them? What's, what's the matter with them? We, we see that that's been true in, in Martha's life. And, and here's something else that I think we can, we can take as well. Yeah, there's celebration that Lazarus has been raised from the dead, but it's not like just because the end result is great that all the effects of the trauma disappear. And here, just, just, just a little while after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, Martha is back to work. And sometimes a great coping mechanism for task-oriented people is to work. And so people who are more relational, they don't understand that. And they think, oh, there must be something wrong with them because this just happened in their life and, and they're doing this and they're doing this and they haven't taken the time to process and they haven't taken the time to, to heal. But what people that aren't task-oriented don't recognize about people that are task-oriented is sometimes the greatest thing they can do to heal is to work on something. And, and the reason I'm just camping out here for, for just a minute is because we've got to recognize that within the community of followers of Jesus, we need both. We need people who are task-oriented. We need people who are more relational. If you have people who are all relational and, and you have nobody who's task-oriented, then everybody's going to feel loved, but it's just going to be an avenue of chaos. And if you have everybody that's task-oriented, you are going to have operationally a smooth machine. But you're going to have people wondering, do I even matter? Do people even care about me? And we see this beautiful dynamic here and how Mary and Martha are sisters, but they're different, and both are loved by God. Both are called by God, and God uses both of their gifts to accomplish things 
that are recorded for us to learn from and to grow from. So the challenge is, if you're a feeler, don't judge the task-oriented person you don't understand. And if you're task-oriented, you probably don't have feelings. So don't judge the feeler. <laughs> don't judge the feeler because it ain't going to make sense to you. Just let them sing their little will you go to prom with me song and shake your head and then move on to it. Mary is very different from Martha, and the beautiful thing is God calls all kinds of different people unto himself. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Martha's cooking. Martha's getting everything ready for dinner. And here Mary comes out with a pound of expensive perfume. And she anoints the feet of Jesus. Now this is the same event that's recorded for us in Mark chapter 14. Mark tells us that Mary started pouring over the head of Jesus. Now some people would look at that and say, oh, well see, you can't trust scripture. Because in Mark's account, Mary pours over the head of Jesus. But here, John tells us that, that Mary was wiping his feet. Well, who's to say that John saw all of the account? Remember that all of scripture is inspired from God. It ultimately comes from God. But God uses the personalities and the profiles of human authors. So there, there, isn't, there isn't anything that we really have to overcome at all here. John focuses on Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. Mark gives us a more complete view of the entire act. And when you think about this, you've got to remember... Jesus wasn't rocking some comfortable dad shoes. He wasn't rocking like the, the newest sneakers. He wasn't rocking anything along those lines. We don't have paved streets. It's dirty. It's dusty. It's grimy. There's sandals. There's sweat. His feet are, are aching and Mary takes this perfume and she pours it on Jesus. And if you're a feeler, you're like, what a beautiful picture this is. And if you're task-oriented, you're like, what is going on? She takes her hair. And she starts to wipe the feet of Jesus. Now Luke tells us of another occurrence that isn't the same occurrence. This occurrence is the same in Mark chapter 14, but Luke chapter 7 tells us of another incident where another woman who isn't named came and left behind her life of prostitution. And when she did so, she anointed Jesus with oil and with perfume. So it's, it's a different setting culturally than anything we understand. I wanted to get this across one time when I was working with students. I wanted to get this across. And so I went to the drugstore, and I bought the biggest, cheapest bottle of perfume I could buy. Just, just a massive bottle. It cost like $27, and it, it probably was meant to be three years' worth. 
and I, I pulled one of our students up, and we just anointed him with the entire bottle of perfume. And that day I found out that some people are allergic to perfume because <laughs> I thought I was going to kill one of my students. And the smell of that just overtook the entire room. Now, granted, that was $27 perfume uh, from, from Walgreens, and so probably not the same level of quality that's being used here. But if you have ever been around somebody that maybe put on an extra squirt of cologne or two or three or four, if you've ever been trapped in an elevator with that person, you know, you know what that smells like. And you know you can start to taste it. And like you're breathing in, you're like, okay, I've got to breathe out of my, breathe in through my mouth. And then you do that and you're like, wrong choice. And then your eyes start to water and you're like, just get me off of this elevator as fast as I possibly can. You know how it just comes and it attacks the senses and it takes over. And here is this scene. And what we're told is that not everybody at this dinner is a fan of this, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, now let's just stop right there. So we've met Lazarus, we've met Mary, we've met Martha, and now we meet the next character in this story, Judas Iscariot. We know from John 6, 71, that Judas was the son of Simon Iscariot. And Judas is the disciple who's about to betray Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, when Judas is referenced, he's referenced as the one who would betray him. Judas would go on to sell Jesus for pieces of silver. And I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by what happens in the heart of someone who walks with Jesus for three years and sees all of the miracles that Jesus performed and hears him teach and literally encounters the Son of God in the flesh and how his heart can be so far that he would never come to the place where he would follow Jesus. I'm fascinated by this, and I don't have an answer for that question. And I'm also fascinated by the fact that God, when he would choose 12 people to follow him day in and day out, would choose one that he knew would betray him. And what we're going to see is he didn't just give Judas all of the terrible jobs. Like maybe it'd be fun if you knew someone was going to betray you and you came to die anyways. You're like, all right, I'm going to have a little fun with you. <laughs> Everything I don't want to do. Hey, Judas, I'm going to need you to do that. Judas, go do that. No, that's not what we see. What we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus loved Judas. Not because he was unaware of what would happen, but because the heart of God loves those who even choose to reject him. I can't explain it. I can't fully grasp it. What we see throughout the Gospels of Jesus and Judas is Jesus choosing to love the one who would betray him. And Judas's takeaway from this event is this. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Did you get this? That Jesus chooses Judas, knowing Judas is going to betray him. And then when the disciples are sitting around talking amongst themselves, they're like, hey, people are giving money to the ministry. Who should we have in charge of the money? Judas. He was trusted by every one of the disciples. They looked at Judas and they saw a man of character. They looked at Judas and said, we can trust him. They put him in charge of the money, trusted by everyone else. But Jesus saw the heart. Jesus knew all along. Appearances can be deceiving. What you think you know about other people can be incredibly incredibly deceiving. Jesus knew the reality. And he loved him anyways. And Judas now does some incredible virtue signaling. I mean, if this was circa today, people would applaud and this would get so many likes and comments and shares on social media. You, you would just have an overnight sensation as he's like, look at this waste of money. What about the poor? 300 denarii, that's a year's wages. That's how much this perfume cost. He says, Jesus, what a waste. Think of all the people we could feed with this money. Think about the poor. I mean, this is incredible virtue signaling, but, but God pulls back the curtain for us here and just gives us a little bit of a glimpse, a little bit of a glimpse. He lets us know that the, the real reason that Judas said that wasn't because he cared about the poor at all. It was because he knew that once the money was in the money bag, he'd have the ability to embezzle from it. That he could help himself. And I just want to encourage you or maybe challenge you with this, that God sees beyond our virtue signaling. God sees our real motives. God sees the intent of our hearts. And Judas was a thief all along. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, this is, this is confusing. We don't have a ton of time to spend on this today. But, but we, just, we don't know whether there was some perfume left in the jar that Jesus was speaking of here, whether, whether he's talking about her keeping the broken jar as a keepsake, knowing that very soon he would go to die upon the cross, or whether Jesus is talking metaphorically as a memory. We can't be incredibly sure of what Jesus is talking about here. But the one thing we can be sure of is that Jesus is accepting her worship. Jesus is accepting her worship. And this is, what, this is what fascinates me, that there are going to be times where other people will not understand your spiritual journey. There will be times that other people do not understand what, 
what you're doing. They will not understand what you're experiencing, what you're feeling. There will be other times in your life where people do not understand why you follow Jesus. They do not understand why you feel compelled to serve and the ways you feel compelled. And I just want to remind you that you are doing this for an audience of one. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the room thought about what Mary did. All that matters is Jesus's perspective. Jesus says, leave her alone. This is a beautiful act of worship. Then he concludes with this. For the poor, you will always have with you. But you do not always have me. For the poor, you will always have. And here's the question. Now that the skeptic would throw out, well, see, did Jesus not care about the poor? Well, it's just the opposite. This isn't a message denigrating the poor. This is a message all about priorities. And this is why in our charitable causes and everything else, we must advance the cause of Jesus. We must advance the cause of Jesus. Yes, when people are hungry, they have a need. They have a need for food. But if I just meet their need for food and I do nothing about the greater need that they may not even recognize and realize and that's a spiritual need, that I haven't served them in the best possible way. Yes, my love of God compels me to feed the hungry, to clothe the poor, to fight for the poor and the oppressed. But we cannot simply feed people for food's sake. As we're told here from these words of Jesus, there is something greater at work, and the greatest need that anyone has, the greatest need that anyone experiences is a need for the relationship with their creator. So, what do we do with all of this? As we looked at Lazarus, who was sick, who died and was raised from the dead. As we looked at Martha, who's cooking dinner for everybody and has everybody over to her house. As we looked at Mary, who takes a year's worth of money, goes and buys perfume, and then pours it all over Jesus, takes her hair and washes his feet with her hair and the perfume. As we saw Judas, the disciple that God chose, even though he knew would betray him, and still let him control all the money, even though he knew he was embezzling. What do we do with all of this? Well, here are a few things that I think we can take away. The first is this. Recognize that even when God does great things, there will be opposition. Even when God does great things, there will be opposition. Jesus had to leave the town he was in because he raised someone back to life and the response of people is, let's kill him. Next is, if you're sick and God doesn't heal you, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that you have a lack of faith. We can't always understand why God does what he does. We can't always understand why God chooses to act in certain ways in certain situations and why God seemingly doesn't choose to act in certain ways in other situations. But we see that Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. We know that Jesus could have healed him at any time. He chose not to. And if you are struggling today with an illness or sickness, 
just want to remind you, it doesn't mean that God's mad at you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Next is sometimes people process by staying busy. Sometimes people process by burying themselves in work and in projects. Sometimes people process by responding in more emotional ways. And if we're going to try to understand everyone, we just got to recognize the fact that we can't. That God has made each and every one of us unique. He's given each and every one of us a certain outlook. He's given each and every one of us gifts and talents and abilities. And our emotions are all different from somebody else's emotions. And there is no one standard cookie cutter way that our, that our emotions need to play out. There are there are certain safeguards that we need to put in place because Scripture gives us those guardrails and we need to operate within those. But as long as we're operating within those things, that the way I process my emotions is going to be different than the way that you process your emotions. And that doesn't mean that you're better than me and it doesn't mean that I'm better than you. It just means that we're diverse and we're different. And that's okay. Sometimes everyone thinks they know someone. And they're wrong. God still loves those who will not love him in return. God still loves those who will not love him in return. And last, there's no greater need that people have than a relationship with Jesus. There Mary was, wiping the feet of Jesus with a perfume that cost a year's worth of wages. Jesus said, leave her alone. And what she's done is preparing me for my greater purpose. We serve a God who loves us and who came to sacrifice himself to set us free. He has called people of all different walks of life to follow him. And God has made you unique. But he's created you that way with a purpose and with a plan. And he's made you that way for a reason. And all of us who follow Jesus, our journeys will look different. And that's okay. And that's one of the beautiful things about community. That God hasn't wired us all the same. We are different. And collectively, we're better because of those differences. God, I pray that we would be people who choose to follow you, even in times of opposition even in times when we're not understood. That we would recognize that you've created each and every one of us differently. And that's okay. God, I pray for the person who's here and watching from home. 
who's suffering from chronic illness and has prayed a thousand, maybe even a million times for you to heal them, for you to take this, and for whatever reason, God, you've chosen not to. And I pray that they would not lose their hope. I pray that they would not think that you do not love them or that you're angry at them. God, I thank you for people that you've wired to be task-oriented. And I pray, God, that they would continue to find joy and fulfillment in their work and in service. And I pray that you would give them an understanding of people that aren't wired like them. God, I thank you for people that you've wired to be feelers who love to encounter others and who are empathetic and, and care about people. God, I pray that you'd give them an understanding of the people that aren't like them, that they aren't cold and distant. They're just different. God, as you love people who even choose not to love you, I pray that would just fill our hearts with hope for the people in our lives that we love who haven't made the choice to follow you. And God, well, we can't force them we'd see them in the same way that you do. And God, as we worship you, even when people don't understand, let us remember that our worship is for an audience of one. You and you alone, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for our redemption, which you purchased with your blood on the cross. In your name we do pray. Amen.